Well, hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today, we're, well, we're approaching the end of the book of Romans. We're not quite there yet. We'll be in the 15th chapter today as we start to round out some of the discussion that Paul has been having with the church at Rome, and we move into some of his closing statements. Now, there's still more to go next week, but for this week, we're in chapter 15 of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and I'm glad to have all of you who could join us for this study. To come on board. Now, if you're just joining us this week, I want to encourage you to go back, cover the rest of the book of Romans. It lays a foundation and a groundwork for background discussion and for understanding where the scripture has been heading up until this point. You'll just have a fuller understanding and a fuller grasp of what's happening in the text. So I encourage you to do that if you're new to this podcast. But if you're a regular with us, it is great to have you back. I hope you find this to be an edifying and challenging time of studying God's Word. Because our goal together here in this is to, well, to grasp hold of Scripture and apply it to our lives, to understand it and understand what it means in our own hearts and lives. So I thank you for joining us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we will turn to the passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as as we turn our attention to your word, as we seek to hear your voice speaking through these words, Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart and a spirit that is sensitive to your voice a willingness to respond to you, not just to hear the words and then forget them, but Father, to hear what you have to say and to take it to heart, to let it challenge us and convict us that we may reach that point of repenting, of turning away from our disobedience to you and of living lives that bring glory to you. Now, Father, as we study this passage today, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart sensitive to your word, that we may live lives that glorify you, whether that be uniting in your suffering or boldly proclaiming you. Lord, wherever it is you put us and in whatever context we find ourselves, Lord, I pray that you would use us, that you would use our lives for your glory and your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so picking up in chapter 15, we start in actually partway through a discussion. Really, it's a continuation of chapter 14 where he's been talking about the the stronger spiritual brothers and sisters in the church versus the weaker spiritual brothers and sisters and the the understanding about not being bound by the Old Testament laws and dietary requirements and traditions, but instead being free in Christ. But that freedom in Christ isn't a license to do things that would injure the faith of others, even if they are of a weaker faith not as mature in the faith, don't have as complete an understanding on these matters. All of that being taken into consideration, Paul already having laid out that the overarching principle is love that should guide how we interact. That it's not, oh, I'm more spiritually mature, or I understand this better than you do, so you just need to follow my lead, or you just need to get over your problem with it. That is never what Paul advocates. Instead, He says, the thing that should drive us is our love for our brother. That if I see that what I'm doing 
even though I know I'm free in Christ to do it and I have a clear conscience doing it, is going to cause a problem for you and your faith, in your spiritual growth, in your understanding of what it is to follow God. It's going gonna, it's gonna to tweak your conscience if you join in my behavior. Then I need to abstain. I need to temper my own freedom in Christ and temper it with love for my brother. Because I can claim that freedom in Christ, but I'm not being obedient to Christ in that freedom if I'm doing damage to the faith of my brother in the exercise of my freedom. Because we are called, you'll remember it, greatest commandment, Paul has already quoted it a chapter or two ago, or in the last couple of chapters, in a paraphrased fashion, he's quoted it. We are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. If we don't have that horizontal relationship along with that vertical relationship, experiencing the love of God and living it out in love with those around us, then we are deficient. We are not as great as we think we are, which we're not as great as we think we are. Christ is that great. So it's out of that discussion, it's moving forward with the completion of that thought from 14 that we find ourselves in the first part of 15, where Paul says this in verse one, we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. So there he's summing it up and notice how he groups them. There's the weak and the strong. And in the previous chapter, he made it pretty clear the weak were those adhering to the Jewish laws and principles. And the strong were those predominantly Gentile believers who knew that they had freedom in Christ and were set free from all of those obligations. Notice who he groups himself with, the Gentile believers. Now, not exclusively Gentiles. They were Jewish background believers that understood the freedom in Christ and grace of God and, and were more mature, stronger in their faith. And there were some Gentile believers that were adhering to some of the Jewish teachings and, and falling into that mindset of rules and regulations, and therefore were weaker in their faith. But it's just interesting there that Paul lines himself, even though he's got a strong Jewish background, with predominantly the Gentile group. Just a little side note there. But his point is profound. We must not just please ourselves. Instead, we are to what? We're, we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. It's not put up with them. It's be considerate for them. When we are considerate towards someone, we take into account their feelings, their viewpoints. We seek their good. It's more than tolerance. It is a love and embracing of them. Sometimes we in our Christian life think it's good enough. We think we're loving our neighbor when we tolerate them. We think we are showing love for our brother and sister in Christ when we put up with them. That isn't the same thing. Not by a long stretch. And we're called to more than that. Well, he goes on, we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Even if Christ didn't live to please himself, or excuse me, wow, 
messed that one up, didn't I? Verse three, for even Christ didn't live to please himself. So he's appealing to scripture. He's appealing to to Christ and the life he lived. Look, Jesus did not live to please himself, but instead everything he did was for others and obedience to the Father. Why do we think we have license now as followers of Christ to live for ourselves and to do the things that please ourselves? We don't even see that in the life of Jesus. Why do we think we get that privilege? We don't. We don't get that privilege. We think we do. We don't get that privilege. For even Christ, verse 3, even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the scripture says, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So here again, we have hints that we are going to be lumped in with Jesus. And that's really a good thing um, that we may encounter that persecution, that we may encounter that grief and that sorrow that was encountered in the life of Christ. And that is good to be united with Christ in his suffering, as Paul talks about elsewhere. That is a good thing. And when we start thinking we deserve better, when we start thinking we should have privilege because of our relationship with Christ, instead of understanding the privilege is our relationship with Christ, is being made right with God when we didn't deserve it, but through God's love and grace for us, then we start to have the right frame of reference. But whenever we slip into embracing our freedom in Christ more than we embrace our obedience to Christ, we've, we've missed it. We've gotten things out of order or we've missed some key part of understanding what it is to live our relationship with Christ. So we, we just can't go there. Verse 4. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. It's there for us to learn from. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement. Yeah, they're not just there to bust our chops. They're there to give us hope and to give us encouragement, to spur us on as we wait patiently for God's promise to be uh, fulfilled. What promise? The promise of the return. The promise of the resurrection. The promise of that great and terrible day of the Lord. We wait for it. We long for it. The day is coming and it's closer than it's been. In five, it says, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he kind of brings it all together. We've been talking about those that are spiritually strong versus those that are spiritually weak. We've been talking about, you know, uh, the embracing of each other, the acting in love towards one another, even if our views differ on these things, that we would temper our own freedom for the benefit of the other and their faith and their belief in Christ and their obedience and what the convictions of their heart, their conscience is that we would seek to build them up, not just put up with them, but build them up. 
And then he kind of brings that all together and says, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other. Are there differing viewpoints? Yes. Is there a different maturity level? Yes. But still, in Christ, we can live in harmony with each other. We won't all be the same, but we can fit together in harmony. It can work in Christ. Why? Because as the verse goes on in five, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus, we are united in Christ that alone makes it possible for us to live in harmony with one another. And it doesn't matter our quirks. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter economic status. It doesn't matter the things we use to identify ourselves or differentiate ourselves from one another. The truth is in Jesus Christ, we are united and we can live and should live in harmony with one another. Verse six, then all of you can join together with one voice. How do we live as one people, as the redeemed of Christ, as the bride of Christ? How do we live as one people with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? We do it because, as Paul prays, that God may give us this patience and encouragement to help us to live in complete harmony. Take some effort on our part, but it takes the gift of God, which we've already received. The Holy Spirit, salvation, a right relationship with God. We have those things if we know Christ as Savior and Lord. So let's have it play out in our lives as harmony with one another. And not even, well, we need it within our denominations, but amongst our denominations. If we are the redeemed, if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, then we need to be in harmony with one another. In fact, the, uh, you know, the, the point here, not just putting up with or putting other people first instead of just putting up with other people. But also we need to be receiving one another. We need to be accepting of one another. And that's where we go in the next. Verse 7 reads, Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Now, we could spend a while just on verse 7, because the reality of the depth of verse 7 is pretty profound. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. The why? So that God will be given glory. How has Christ accepted you? Unconditionally. Out of love for you. With grace. He has accepted you even though you were an enemy. In fact, doesn't Scripture tell us, doesn't the book of Romans tell us that God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? You see, God did everything necessary to save us before we even cared. 
And at no point did we deserve right relationship with God. And yet, that's how he takes us. And Paul says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ accepted you. We don't get the privilege of looking at our brother and sister and saying, I'll accept you when you reach this point. I'll accept you when we come together on these ideas. I'll accept you when you've cleaned yourself up enough, when you've dealt with these things in your life that I don't like, when you've reached some point. No. The love of Christ in our lives being lived out means that we love them and we accept them. In the words of the hymn, just as I am. We accept them just as they are. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ Jesus accepted you so that God will be given glory. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is why the psalm or that is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah says, The heir to David's throne will come, and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, Paul is taking those passages and he's relating them back and saying, hey, this is for both the Jewish background believer and the Gentile background believer, but this is all the work of Christ. So if you know Christ, you need to understand that his love in your life, his spirit in your life, your life lived out in obedience to him is going to be embracing of all that are his. We will be accepting of one another. We will love one another. And that love will live itself out in a way that calls us to unity, that calls us to harmony with each other for the glory of God. Not to say, look how great we are, because we're not that great. We are that greatly forgiven and redeemed. And so Christ calls us to obedience. And when we live out that obedience, it brings him glory. Now we shift gears a little bit when we get to verse 14. Um, the letter of Romans is, is a more lengthy letter that Paul wrote, and he's writing it to a church that he didn't start and he's actually never been to at this point. 
but he hopes to go there. And he's laying groundwork and addressing things that he knew about the church with them before he gets there. And he's about to explain a little bit of that in the closing of the letter. Now, this letter closes pretty much with a standard closing, but it's the second half of verse or chapter 15 and spills over through 16. 16 sidetracks a little bit. There's a doxology in there, which isn't unheard of in the closing of a letter. There's also a warning against false teachers, but we'll deal with that next week. This week, as we round out chapter 15, Paul moves into this closing and he expresses some of his desires and some of his intents and how he sees the people at the church at Rome fitting into that. Let's dig in. Verse 14. I am fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach each other all about them. Even so, I've been bold enough to write you or write to you about some of these points, knowing that all you need is a reminder. For by God's grace, I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. Now, as he said all that, what is he saying? He's saying, I know I haven't been there. I know basically we don't know each other, but he said, I'm fully convinced that you're my brothers and sisters. I'm fully convinced of, of your goodness. You have the Spirit of Christ in your life. So he has said all of this, challenging them on these different points. And some of it may have been hard for them to hear. I imagine it was not universally accepted as, oh, great, a word from Paul, you know. Um, it may have been falling on some hard ground here. But still, Paul goes back and says, look, I, I know that you're full of goodness. I know you could teach each other these things. You don't need me to say it, but I just wanted to weigh in and remind you of the things you already know. Isn't that true in our lives? Don't we sometimes need that brother or sister in Christ to come into our lives and simply point out some of the stuff we already know? that maybe we have uh, been neglecting, maybe that stuff in our life that we've um, taken for granted so much, we've begun to dismiss it instead of pay attention to it and live in obedience to it as part of God's word. Paul is being that, that irritant for them, that reminder that draws their attention back to these things. And that's his point. That's what he's going for. He is trying to draw believers back to where they need to be in this, this being the believers in Rome, back to where they need to be. So again, in verse 16, I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I may present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. So, 
Paul is pointing out that God has done a lot in his life and in his ministry. And by the way, God's not done with Paul yet at this point, all right? But he's pointing that out. And in pointing it out, he pauses to say, this may sound like I'm bragging. He uses different words, but, you know, I dare not boast. He said, I'm happy about this. I'm excited about this. I can point to all these great things God has done through my ministry. But I have to point out, it's not about my ministry. It's about how great God is. And it's that God has done all these things. That is a healthy way to look at it. We need to understand when God is at work through our lives, touching the lives of others, it's not us. We get to be along for the ride, but it is the work of God. And we don't get to boast on, look, I did this. I saved these people. I have never saved anybody because I cannot atone for their sins. Christ has saved them. I had the privilege of being along for the ride of being the mouthpiece that that said the words. But it was God that gave the power to the words, not me. We always need to understand in our own lives and in our own ministries, it has got to be Christocentric. It has got to be focused on Christ. It is His power. It is His work. And he invites us to be part of his redemptive work, both as recipients, but also as those who carry the message forward as evangelist, carriers of the good news to others. How will they know unless they are told? Yeah. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced, verse 19, they were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. Now, God may have done miracles using Paul. God may have done signs using Paul. But It was God that did the miraculous signs. It was God that did the wonders. And it is by the power of God's Spirit that these things happen, that they were convinced. So Paul's going, not me. Not me, him. He goes on in the rest of 19. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Now, where's Illyricum? Actually, that's a good question. That is the area north of Rome and north of, I believe, the Aegean Sea. It's actually what would be modern-day Albania and Croatia. Let that rattle around in your brain for a moment. We're talking about Paul has planted churches and carried the gospel throughout that part of the Mediterranean, all the way up into what we consider Eastern Europe. Um, That's pretty cool. It gets cooler. Hang on. Let's As we pick up in verse 20, he starts to share his plans for the future. He says, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard 
rather than where the church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, Those who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I have been preaching in these places. Now, I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome, and after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. That's not real presumptive on Paul's part. That was normal tradition for itinerant ministers to have a a base church of operations that maybe helped fund, but also those along the way would help take care of of those evangelists, those itinerant ministers as they traveled and did things. But Paul's real base of operations was in Antioch, back over the other side of the Mediterranean. And as he's looking at heading to Spain, the Iberian Peninsula at that day, in that day and time, in fact, in Paul's lifetime, uh, Spain had become a province of Rome, although it had been controlled by Rome for some 200 years at this point. Um, it had just become a province of Rome, and it was not what we know as modern-day Spain, although modern-day Spain is on the Iberian Peninsula. Modern-day, you've got Spain and Portugal both there. Uh, They didn't make that distinction during this period of of the Roman Empire. It was all Spain. So Paul's talking about going over there. Uh, That's mainly in Europe. That's uh, pretty significant. That's also the civilized boundaries of the Roman Empire. Now, we know at this point that the Roman Empire, they actually had garrisons up on the British Isles. So uh, we know that as the message spread throughout the Roman Empire, even within the first century, that the gospel made it pretty far. But I just think it's cool. Now, we don't have the account of Paul going to Spain, but there, there seems to be adequate indications that it was his plan and that within the time left in his life and ministry, that that most likely happened. And when he went through Rome and he winds up going to Rome after being arrested at Jerusalem and ultimately winds up in Rome and then so on and so forth, you can read that over in the book of Acts, but we'll get there. He's saying, look, that's my ambition is to come to you guys and use you guys as my base of support as I head further west into this new province of Rome, into Spain. So they would be a support to him and an encouragement. Interestingly enough, he didn't start the church at Antioch either. And they, under the leadership of God, set him and Barnabas apart and sent them out as missionaries. Now he's asking Rome, another church he did not start, to adopt him in his ministry and move forward with that, supporting that ministry as he goes out towards Spain. So there's a lot going on here. It's, it's I think it's just really cool how it's all working and and fitting together. He's saying, look, that's always been my ambition. He sees his drive, his calling, and appropriately so. Think back to the road to Damascus experience and what Christ tells him on the road is going to be his call, his his job description in ministry, if you will. And he says his plan has always been what he finds in scripture, if you will, his theme scripture, Uh, those who have never been told about him 
will see. And those who have never heard of him will understand. That's what's driving him and his desire to move forward and, and to share the gospel with those folks. And he sees Rome as part of the completion of that plan. He's, in essence, not just saying, hey, will you guys support me as I do this? He's inviting them to take part in that ministry. It is an invitation to join in what God is doing. It's kind of neat if you think about it. In our Christian walk and in our lives, God is constantly giving us invitations to join him in what he is doing. That's what it is for us to take part in sharing the gospel. We're invited to join God in what he is doing, but not just in sharing the gospel in so many ways. And supporting of missions is part of that. Just something to chew on there for a moment. Now, as we come into verse 25, He's giving his more short-term plans. He's just described his long-term plans. His short-term plans, verse 25, but before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take the gift of the believer to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, that's the northern and southern parts of the Greek peninsula, have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. Now, there was profound poverty within the church in Jerusalem. Part of the reason for that is the way Jewish society was set up. Your business partners, those you bought groceries from, those you sold things to, all of that part of your financial life was tied together with the identity of the Jewish community. So for those that had accepted Christ as their Savior and Lord and were ostracized from that Jewish community, they lost their friends, they lost their suppliers if they had a business, they lost their customers if they had a business, they weren't sold to at the local grocery store anymore. They, if their families didn't come to faith, but just they did, they were kicked out of their family, out of their home they experienced what it was to be cut off from society. And so there was some serious hardship there. Uh, there was also a famine in that area of the world at that time. So not only was there famine happening to everybody, and that was causing food shortages, you also had this, this destitute poverty taking place with those that had been completely ostracized and cut off from the life of their community. It's hard for us to understand that in most of our context these days, although some have seen that take place, depending on what your background is. And uh, if you came to faith in Christ, what situation you came to faith in. I've, I've known of families that, that essentially had funerals when a family member came to faith in Christ because it didn't fit with their history and tradition as a family. And so they were like, they're no longer part of the family. You may think that sounds extreme, but there are backgrounds in which that is the reality. If not literally, although some cases literally, functionally, that is the reality. But it was extreme in Jerusalem and they were suffering. And so this offering had been taken up and he explains that a little more. He says, they've eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles receive the spiritual blessing of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return 
is to help them financially. As soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. And I am sure that when I come, Christ will richly bless our time together. So I said, I I know when we finally can get together, God's going to bless it. It's going to be awesome. But I've got to do this. I have to help them complete this gift, this this good deed to build up and support their brothers and sisters in Christ back in Jerusalem. I've got to help finish, help them finish that. And then I'll come see you. He said, that's the plan. He goes on in 30. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because you love me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. Your love for me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. Again, do this because of your love for me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. They haven't met Paul. And yet in Christ, there is a connection there. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is through that connection with the Holy Spirit, through that burden on their heart when they hear from Paul and about Paul and what is happening, that there is a connectedness there. And they love him and they want to support what he is doing. And how can they do that? By praying for him. By praying for him. It's amazing what praying for someone does, even for our attitude towards that person. Lately in our own church life, I've been emphasizing quite a bit about how we should be praying for people, uh, even those we disagree with, even those we maybe decide we don't like. We need to be praying for them and not praying about them, praying for them. One of the neat things about that is it changes our attitude. It changes the way we feel about that person, the way we approach thinking about that person. It does a lot to shape us. doesn't mean our prayers are any less genuine. They're genuine. But it is amazing how that prayer before God begins to allow God to shape our heart to be more in line with his heart. And isn't that one of the things we're called to do? To reflect him? So he's called on them to pray. In verse 31, he says, Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I am taking to Jerusalem. Wow, that's kind of a big thing. There are those in Jerusalem that are out to get him because they've rejected God. And he's saying, hey, I'll pray about that situation. Uh, pray that I will be rescued from them. And pray that the believers there, there's this generous gift that is coming from the, the new churches and these, these believers that feel they owe a debt back to Jerusalem, a spiritual debt, but they see where they can physically touch those lives uh, with these resources pray that the believers in Jerusalem will accept 
that gift. Hmm. Wow. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I am taking to Jerusalem. Then, by the will of God, I will be able to come to you with a joyful heart. And we will be an encouragement to each other. So again, pray for these things. Why? Because at the end of all of it, then I'll be able to come to you with a joyful heart. We will be an encouragement to each other. He's looking forward to that time with expectation of coming together and being a blessing to each other. And, And he's emphasizing that again with them. Pray for these things so that we can get to that point. So that day will come. And then he finishes out with verse 33. And now may God, who gives us his peace, be with you all. Amen. And that's the end of the chapter, not the end of the book. We got one more chapter. But in closing out today, let me echo what Paul has just said. And now may God, who gives us his peace, be with you all. Amen.